The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 21. We have been working our way uh, passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and so today the next passage we come to is uh, the complete chapter of 21, verses 1 through 34, so I'll be reading just a selection, though, of the verses from that passage, starting in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring." So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child." And as she sat opposite him, she lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then the Lord opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Jeremy, let's pray together. Father, every word that 
we find written in this passage is uh, truly a priceless treasure, primarily because it's your self-revelation. So thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are or how we can know you or, or live in the realm of your blessing. Lord, you've already told us in your word. And so help us, Father, to understand everything that we need to understand. And not only that, but to be changed in every way that we need to be changed through this passage and through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. But probably won't surprise you to learn that most Americans today have less confidence in public institutions than they've had in previous years. In fact, the average level of confidence in most institutions is actually at historic lows. Uh, the most recent data is from 2022 and comes to us from Gallup. When people were asked how much confidence they have in various institutions, only 23% said that they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the presidency. 23%. Only 25% said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. And only 7% said that they had one of those two levels of confidence in Congress. That was the lowest ranking institution in the entire survey. Uh, the police came in at 45%. The criminal justice system came in at 14%. And public schools came in at 28%. The same percentage of people, 28%, indicated confidence in organized labor. 14% indicated confidence in big business. And 38% indicated confidence in the medical system. As for the media, only 16% of people had either a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in news from the internet. And uh, newspapers also came in at 16%, and television news was only at 11%. And uh, for most of these institutions, these numbers uh, represent record-breaking lows. Uh, in fact, for all but three of the institutions, there was a lower level of confidence in 2022 than in any other year previously, since they began keeping track of these things in the 1970s. So basically, trust in just about everything is at an all-time low. And the sad thing is that for most of us, these statistics probably aren't even very surprising. Many of us probably also believe that there's good reason uh, for the widespread lack of trust in at least a lot of these institutions. You know, we live in a time when a lot of people have shown themselves uh, in a lot of different institutions to, to be quite untrustworthy. And yet that just makes me appreciate what we know to be true about God even more. Those of us who are Christians understand that we serve a God whom we can trust completely. A God who never lies, who never breaks his promises, who never misrepresents his intentions or distorts the facts, and who always acts 
and speaks with absolute integrity. That means if God does something, we know it's right. And if he says something, we know it's true. And that's what we see confirmed here in our main passage of Genesis 21. The main idea of this passage is that God shows himself faithful in fulfilling his promise and accomplishing his purpose. Again, God shows himself faithful in fulfilling his promise and accomplishing his purpose. So let's take a look, a closer look at both of these realities as we see them illustrated in this passage. First, we'll see how God's faithful in fulfilling his promise and then how he's faithful in accomplishing his purpose. Uh, ever since uh, Genesis chapter 12, we've seen God promising Abraham repeatedly that he'd have a son. We find these promises in Genesis 12, 2, Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 15, 4, Genesis 17, 4, Genesis 17, 16, and Genesis 18, 10. Right? All of these verses record specific promises from God that even in Abraham's old age, that Abraham would have a son. And even the passages in these chapters that don't specifically mention the son God would give Abraham and Sarah are still written with that promise in view. Just about every passage either heightens our anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise or presents an obstacle or a threat to his promise being fulfilled. And so in various ways, this promised child is what the entire narrative has been focused on and is looking forward to ever since Genesis 12. So the suspense has been gradually building throughout these chapters. And now, finally, after uh, 25 years of Abraham and Sarah waiting for God to fulfill his promise, here's what we read in Genesis 21, 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So God was faithful to fulfill his promise, right? That's emphasized three times in the span of these two verses. In verse 1, we read that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and that he did to Sarah as he had promised. Then verse 2 states that Sarah bore Abraham a son at the time of which God had spoken him, right? So note the words, said, promised, and spoken, right? So just in case any reader might have somehow missed it, these verses make it very clear that Isaac's birth wasn't just some ordinary birth, but rather a miraculous fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The passage then continues in verses 3 through 6. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
Now, this isn't the first time that laughter has come up. In Genesis 17, 17, Abraham laughed what appears to have been, judging from the context, a laughter of joyful anticipation. Then in Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed a laugh of doubt or skepticism. Uh, Maybe much like the kind of laughter that might result from me saying, you know, that I'm certain that the Pittsburgh Pirates will win the World Series this year or something like that. Probably not going to happen, right? And so those are two very different kinds of laughter. A laughter of joyful anticipation and a laughter of skepticism. Yet they both seem to come together here in verse 3 in the name of Isaac, the name of this promised child. Uh, The name Isaac simply means he laughs. Sarah then says in verse 6 that God has made laughter for me Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And uh, that presumably would be a laughter of rejoicing. As Sarah and everyone else who hears about what God's done for her and his goodness toward her and the, the way he's fulfilled his promise where they all rejoice together. So it may have taken a long time, but God was faithful to his promise. And friends, the same is true for us today. God's given us incredible promises in the Bible. And he won't fail to fulfill a single one. Even though we might sometimes find it necessary to take promises that other people make to us with maybe a grain of salt, we can be absolutely certain that God will keep Every promise to us that he's ever made. Let me just give you a few of what I find to be the most meaningful of these promises. Because I don't know about you, but there have been seasons in my life where these promises have been my lifeline. You know, when I'm, I just feel myself sinking in the tumultuous waters of difficult seasons in my life. Promises of God that we find in Scripture have been like the the flotation devices that have held me up and sustained me through those difficult seasons. So I don't think there's anything else that even comes close to providing the kind of comfort that we find in these promises. So here are just a few of them. For starters, there's actually one we recite every week at the conclusion of our worship service. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus assures us, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The God of the universe promises to be present with us, walking with us every step of the way through all the storms and trials that we face in life. We'll never be alone. Similarly, we read in Romans 8, 38 and 39, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
in addition, just a few verses before that, we learn that God works in and through all things for the good of his people. Romans, Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not one drop of suffering will ever be wasted. We also find numerous promises about God answering our prayers. Just to state one of them, uh, Jesus promises in John 15, 7, that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There are also promises related to our struggles with sin. For example, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And for those times when we wonder if we'll ever be able to overcome a certain sinful tendency that we've been struggling with for a long time, we find this guarantee in Philippians 1.6, which we actually looked at, looked at last week. Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. No matter how much we stumble or how hard we fall, the same God who began a good work in us at our conversion, will see that work through to completion until the day Jesus comes back. God also promises to comfort us no matter what we face in our lives. As we read in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all. Our affliction. We may also find ourselves from time to time facing financial uncertainty and be tempted to wonder whether we'll have enough money to pay the bills. Yet there's a promise for that as well. Speaking of material necessities, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We may also find ourselves weighed down from time to time with all sorts of different burdens and anxieties. Yet Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Similarly, we're also promised that God will replace our anxiety with his perfect peace when we pray. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, these are just some of the promises related to our, our present lives here on earth. We haven't even begun to talk about the promises related to eternity yet. One promise related to eternity is one that might not initially seem uh, to be very comforting 
But if you've ever been the victim of a significant act of evil against you, then you know how helpful this promise can be. The promise that God will judge the wicked. Romans 12, 19 states, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Yet thankfully, for those of us who put our trust in Jesus, we're promised that we won't ever have to face that punishment. To quote another verse we looked at last week, 1 John 1, 9 assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Along those same lines, believers are also promised eternal life in the very presence of God. As John 3.16 so famously says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And among countless other blessings, this eternal life involves an end to all suffering. Speaking of the heavenly existence of God's people, Revelation 21.4 promises that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We're even promised rewards in heaven that correlate to how faithfully we've engaged in ministry for the Lord while on earth. 1 Corinthians 3.8, Paul writes that each will receive his wages according to his labor. And let me tell you, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg of the precious promises that we find in the pages of Scripture. You know, perhaps it might be a good idea for us to familiarize ourselves with these promises so that they can be the comfort that God's designed them to be. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. God's promises are the source of immeasurable comfort, but only if we familiarize ourselves with them and study them and hide them in our hearts. You know, in order to benefit from water, you have to drink it, right? In order to benefit from medicine, you have to take it. And in order to be comforted and sustained and upheld by God's promises, we have to be thoroughly familiar with them so that the Holy Spirit can bring them to mind at the appropriate time. Because I don't know about you, but for me, at least, the Holy Spirit has never brought to my mind a, a, a scripture that I didn't first read and learn and seek to internalize. I mean, that's just the way he works. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate in a mental vacuum. Now, making our way back to our main passage of Genesis 21, after that brief excursion, but hopefully a helpful one. There's another way in which God keeping his promise to Isaac is relevant 
for us today. Uh, as we observe God's faithfulness to his promise in bringing about Isaac's birth, we're reminded that God always speaks truthfully. Even though it seemed impossible from a human perspective, since Sarah was so far past the age of childbearing, Isaac's birth nevertheless happened just as God said it would. And even happened at the specific time when God said it would happen. So here in Genesis 21, God's words are shown to be true without any mixture of error or falsehood. And that's the case not only here in this instance, but in every instance. We're told clearly in Numbers 23, 19, that God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We're also told in Proverbs 30, verse 5, that every word of God proves true. And in Titus 1, verse 2, that he's a God who never lies. And in Hebrews 6, 18, that it's impossible for God to lie. And because God always speaks the truth without any mixture of falsehood, we also are called to speak in the same manner. Ephesians 5.25 commands us, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And friends, I believe this is especially important for us to keep in mind. Given the fact that we live in a society that, in general, seems to be less and less concerned about truth-telling <laughs> and more and more tolerant of falsehood and deception. You know, it just seems to be accepted nowadays that people are going to lie and that, in most cases at least, that it's kind of okay for people to lie. But as Christians, we're called to rise above that. As those who serve a God who always speaks what's true, we likewise should be absolutely committed to speaking the truth and maintaining the highest standards for personal integrity. So very briefly, here are 10 ways in which we can sometimes fall short of telling the truth. Uh, by the way, if you're taking notes, I apologize for just giving you one kind of lengthy list of God's promises, and I, I don't know where you're going to write this list, but good luck with that, maybe on the front of your bulletin. Uh, but one way we can fall short of telling the truth is just your classic bold-faced lie in which we say something that's blatantly untrue and even often known by others to be untrue. Another kind of lie is a fabrication in which we invent supposed facts <laughs> that we want to be true out of thin air and then try to pass those off as the truth. And third, there's also exaggeration, which is based on the truth but kind of gives the truth a little boost uh, to, make sure, to make it sound more impressive or, in some cases, more extreme. And the flip side of that, of course, is minimization, 
in which we deliberately downplay something, such as our role and, or responsibility in uh, a situation that turned out poorly. Fifth, it's possible to lie through misrepresentation in which we distort another person's statement or argument or position in order to make a point we want to make. You probably don't have to think very long to come up with examples of people doing that in public discourse. And then sixth, there's also plagiarism in which we try to pass off someone else's work as if it were our own. Seventh, we can lie through a broken promise in which we fail to follow through on a commitment we've made. Then an eighth way of lying is by telling what we might call lies of omission, in which we conveniently fail to mention certain facts that are important for correctly understanding a certain situation. Ninth is hypocrisy, in which we portray ourselves as something other than who we really are. And for everything else, let me suggest the, the broadest category of deception, which is a sort of a catch-all category that covers every way in which we might deliberately try to mislead others. So even if we don't say anything that's technically untrue, it's still possible to speak in such a way that deliberately gives other people the wrong idea. So again, those are 10 ways in which we can often fall short of the standards of truth-telling to which God calls us. Although we might be in a society that's basically swimming in its own lies, and in which lying is, to a large degree, both expected and accepted, we as Christians, let's never forget that we serve a God of truth and are therefore instructed to be truth-tellers ourselves. Now, all of that is related to the faithfulness God demonstrates in keeping his promise to Abraham by miraculously bringing about Isaac's birth, right? God shows himself faithful in fulfilling his promise. However, as we continue moving forward, Genesis 21, we encounter a similar but distinct aspect of God's faithfulness. We see God's faithful not only in fulfilling his promise, but also in accomplishing his purpose. It's God's devotion to his purpose that leads him to do what he does in the subsequent verses. Look at verses 8 through 13. And the child, that would be Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make an, a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So here we see right, some family drama. Right? Uh, we see a situation that came about because Abraham and Sarah had previously taken things into their own hands. 
and tried to give God a little help in fulfilling his promise. After several years, Abraham and Sarah became tired of waiting for the, the child God had promised to them and therefore decided it would be a good idea if Abraham slept with one of Sarah's maidservants named Hagar to try to have a son that way. And sure enough, Abraham got Hagar pregnant, and that son was named Ishmael. But that, of course, was a sinful deviation from God's plan. And in these verses, we can see what a big mess it made. The text says that Sarah saw Hagar's son Ishmael laughing at her own son Isaac. By the way, there's that theme of laughing again. I don't know if there was deposits of happy gas in that area or what, what exactly was going on here, but people are laughing all over the place in these chapters. And yet the word translated laughing in this verse is, actually seems to carry the sense of mocking. In Galatians 4.29, in fact, the Apostle Paul even writes that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. That's the, the word Paul uses to describe what was going on here. So this wasn't some sort of innocent laughter, the way children sometimes do, but rather was very clearly a laughter of contempt. And the ultimate result of this incident, which ends up being confirmed by God, is that Hagar and Ishmael have to go. This is more than your typical case of sibling rivalry. And uh, Ishmael uh, represents uh, really a direct threat to what God intends to accomplish through Isaac. So it's necessary for uh, Ishmael and his mom Hagar to leave. Because from the very beginning, God had chosen Isaac as the one through whom God's covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled and through whom the blessing that God had promised Abraham would flow to the entire world. And God wasn't going to let anything stand in the way of that purpose being accomplished. Again, he was faithful to accomplish his purpose. And there's no question that bidding farewell to Ishmael was incredibly painful for Abraham. But again, it was something that he had brought upon himself, really, from the, because of his sinful deviation from God's plan. Fortunately, God does promise to bless Ishmael also and make him into a, a great nation in his own right, though separately from Isaac. We also read in verses 14 through 21 how God graciously watches over Ishmael and Hagar after they leave. You know, it reminds me of Psalm 34, 18, which says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But that doesn't change the fact that God was still committed to accomplishing his purpose through Isaac. You know, there's a great constancy that we see in God here that we should be thankful for. Even though people might sometimes purpose something, but then maybe lose interest or change their mind or fail to follow through for whatever reason, God's 
always faithful to accomplish his purposes, just as he shows himself to be here in Genesis 21 with Isaac. And that's also a great reminder for us that even though sometimes we might make some very foolish decisions in life, just as Abraham did, and these decisions also often bring tremendous sorrow and heartache. But nevertheless, we can never ultimately derail God's plan for us. And what a comfort. Just to give a few examples, maybe you've unexpectedly become pregnant or gotten someone pregnant outside of marriage. Or maybe as a Christian, you've married someone who's not a Christian and thereby, as Scripture says, become unequally yoked. Or maybe you've engaged in some sort of criminal activity that's led to legal consequences. Or maybe you've lived a lifestyle that's resulted in a significant STD. Or maybe you've had an abortion that haunts you to this day. Regardless of what you've done or what messes you've made, I want you to know that God can take the tangled threads of your life that from a human perspective might seem impossible to straighten out. God can take those threads and he can weave them into a beautiful tapestry. I even think of the, you know, the people whose stories I've been reading online lately who have uh, had what, what are often called gender affirmation or gender affirming surgeries that they now realize were a huge mistake and are causing all kinds of medical difficulties. And to be honest, I, I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more of these kinds of stories all over the place. I think our society is about to be inundated with them. And yet even in those kinds of extreme cases, God can take the tangled messes that people have made and he can work in the most beautiful ways. I mean, just as we see with Abraham here in Genesis 21, God can overcome it all to accomplish his good purposes. And again, we might have to, to suffer some painful consequences just as Abraham had to endure. But we can't derail the good plans that God has for us in and through Jesus Christ. God offers us a grace through Jesus that transcends what anything that, that we may have done in the past. But the important thing is that we recognize that this grace does indeed come to us through Christ. You see, Isaac may be the immediate focus of these chapters in Genesis, but he's not the ultimate focus. As we see in Galatians 3.16, the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham isn't Isaac, but rather Jesus. The role of Isaac is simply to foreshadow Jesus, right? Jesus is the quintessential offspring of Abraham. Like Isaac, 
God's people had to wait a long time for Jesus to be born. In fact, they had to wait centuries. But God fulfilled his promise, just as he always does, when he miraculously enabled, not Sarah this time, but rather Mary, to conceive and give birth to the one who would ultimately become the Savior of the world. God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12, 3, that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that blessing came ultimately through Jesus. And the way Jesus accomplished that was by dying in our place. Even though our sins deserved God's punishment, Jesus endured that punishment in our place on the cross. His death made atonement for our sins so that instead of receiving the, the justice and the judgment that we deserved, we can receive the grace that we don't deserve. Then three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. Jesus can rescue you from whatever sins you've committed and whatever messes you've made. Psalm 103 speaks of him as the one, quote, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit. He'll do that for you you stop trusting in yourself and in your own efforts to get right with God and instead put your full trust in him. As we've seen in Genesis 21, God is faithful to his promises and, and faithful to accomplish his purposes, but both of his promises and his purposes find their ultimate fulfillment in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus. 